Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Just how worried should we be about the future of American democracy? I'm Zach Beecham, and I write for Vox about democracy, liberalism, and the political right. And this week, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. This uncertainty about what's in store for the future of U.S. democracy is the question at the heart of our Vox Conversations two-part special. Recently, I published a feature called How Does This End? on the long-term prognosis of America's political system that kicked up quite a bit of conversation. In the piece, I argued that the American democratic system was breaking down, creating greater risks for violence and a slide out of democracy altogether. And the worst part is that all the best ideas for fixing things seem unlikely to happen at best. So the future for democracy is not looking bright in the United States. In this two-part special, I wanted to spotlight two voices in the discussion who have unique and interesting thoughts on the key issues at stake. This week, part two in the special, I'm talking to Lee Drutman, a senior fellow in the political reform program at the New America Think Tank. In his book, Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, Lee argues, surprise, surprise, that the two-party system is at the heart of America's current democratic crisis. So to fix things, he argues for completely restructuring the way America's congressional elections work. The idea is that if you change the elections, maybe we can enable the rise of a multi-party system. Now, I cited Lee's proposal in my feature as an example of the sort of reform we should be thinking about if we want to preserve American democracy. But the problem is that it's really hard to imagine any of his ideas coming to pass anytime soon. So in our conversation, we not only talk about the reasons that he thinks the two-party system is such a mess, but also why he believes, against all odds, that it really could come to an end. Lee, welcome to the show. Well, I'm thrilled for this conversation, Zach. I'm so glad. I'm just really happy to have you here. I want to start by poking at your argument rather than getting into the agreement fest that I think we'll get into later on. Um, You know, I think a reasonable skeptic might say something like, okay, you think the two-party system is the problem. But we've had a two-party system for a really long time, and yet most of these problems that all of us have noticed in American democracy are a product of recent years. If not the rise of Trump, then certainly the evolution of the Republican Party in the past several decades. Now, the answer that you have to this in the book is that we actually haven't had a two-party system forever. That's a myth that's been obscured 
by the labels that we use for American politics, right? That we actually had a three or four party system, at least for a lot of the 20th century. Yeah, well, that is certainly my argument that although we've had a two-party system in a sort of broad sense, what we have, particularly in the last decade or so, is something that's qualitatively different. It is a highly nationalized two-party system in a politics that's very nationalized in institutions that are 50-50. And that layered on top of this urban-rural polarization has created tremendous instability and all of the horrible things that you described at the beginning of this podcast. And there's really no way out of it unless we rethink how we do our elections and the party system that we have. And I think that the most striking thing about the past year is how much January 6th and COVID have made us even more polarized. Now, you'd think an event like January 6th in particular would have been the kind of, this is going too far. But what happened, I think, is that Republicans were forced to take sides and they wound up having to side with Donald Trump and that every event in our politics has become an event in which the two major parties representing two very different geographic cultural coalitions feel like they have to take sides. And so there's no event, no stress on the system that can realign politics. Everything just seems to make it worse. So I think that point about geographic realities can be expanded, right? The reason that we had what you described as a multi-party system in the past, it's partially about geography and partially about the biggest issue in American politics, which is and always has been race, right? So in the 20th century, you could divide the Democratic Party into two halves, Northern Democrats and Southern Democrats, at least the post-FDR Democratic Party. Earlier than that, things are a little bit different. But Northern Democrats were a lot like the Democrats that we have now. Southern Democrats were Dixiecrats who opposed civil rights but were on board with other parts of a liberal agenda. And then you had Republicans, which, I mean, I've seen different schemas divide Republicans into Northern and Southern halves as well. But broadly speaking, with this allowed this cross-cutting division, the Democratic Party is the bigger one. And it allowed for compromise between different groups because the parties were cross-pressured. Right Inside the Democratic tent, you had Northerners committed to civil rights and Southerners who were hardcore white supremacists, and so they could work with Republicans on different projects. And in general, there weren't just all the identities lined up against each other. But now, after the Johnson administration and the passage of the Civil Rights Act, you end up with a situation where the parties are polarized by identity. Right, Everyone who is racially conservative and white is, is the, the nice terminology, right, is a Republican now. Pretty much. And everyone who is a sort of advocate of racially progressive ideas has been sorted into the Democratic Party at this point. And race is the big issue, but you see this on all sorts of different cross-cutting identity-related issues, right? Like, so Democrats are the party of atheists and Republicans are the party of evangelical Christians. So all of these different groups, partially based on locality, I hesitate to say region because it's not like there are red states and blue states. It's more like there are parts of the states, rural versus urban, more than anything else now, though there are differences by region still. The South is more Republican than you might expect, the Northeast is more Democratic, et cetera. And, and you end up getting these really stark identity divisions that now map on to the two-party system. Yeah, And that is what produces polarization in an extreme way. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and it's a slow process of sorting 
that has really happened since the 1970s on these cultural issues. And really, I mean, the divide is a density divide. I mean, start from the city center, and the further you go from the city center, the more Republican you go. So what has happened is that people are in these communities that are either very lopsidedly progressive or very lopsidedly conservative, and they grow more extreme when they are surrounded by people like them and much less tolerant of the opposing party. And you layer on top of that this kind of all or nothing, every election is the most important election, the country is at risk rhetoric that is used to unite both parties. And every election is this all or nothing fight for the soul of the country in which everything is at stake. And this kind of all or nothing, everything is at stake, creates a politics in which if one side, say the Republicans, want to kind of break away from the basic norms of free and fair elections and and voting rights, there's absolutely no penalty for that. In fact, uh, it's even rewarded. Yeah. One of my um, favorite papers on this topic is by a political scientist named Milan Svolik and his co-author, Matthew Graham. Yeah, and, uh, great paper. Really, really great paper. I don't know if listeners, you all remember this, but in 2017, there was a special election in Montana where the House candidate, the Republican House candidate, Greg Gianforte, assaulted a journalist, Ben Jacobs, like actually physically assaulted him. And so that's like about as egregious anti-democratic behavior as a, in a candidate as one might expect. And so what what Svolik and Graham did, I think is really illustrating the point, Lee, that you just made, is they go through like really granular local level election returns to see if that event, which happened very late in the campaign, caused people to change the way that they voted. You know, if you heard about the assault and you're a Republican, maybe you would penalize Gianforte for his misbehaviors, anti-democratic action. But what they found is that there wasn't that kind of penalty at all, right? That in in moderate areas, there was to a degree. But when you looked at hardcore partisans, Gianforte's behavior didn't hurt him among Republicans. He did win that election, by the way. I mean, it's Montana. That, to them, illustrates the point they illustrate with survey data and other things, which is basically the one that you were just making, Lee, that when you have a choice, a binary choice between two parties— Right, and one represents your values on a whole slate of issues, you're almost always going to vote for that party, even if they do things that violate neutral norms, because almost nobody cares about neutral ideas like the rule of law or the freedom of the press more than they care about something like abortion or race politics, because those are the things that really define people's political orientation. And if you only have one choice as a socially conservative Catholic, let's say, or uh, a black person worried about civil rights, then it doesn't matter what your party does in terms of democracy. What matters is that it's your party. Right. And, you know, I think I'd go even further and expand on that final thing that you said about it being your party, that for a lot of people, the parties feel like a core part of their identity. So if the party is doing something potentially wrong, that, that's a moment of cognitive dissonance where you kind of have to find a way to justify that. And you know, I think that the truly remarkable thing about the transformation of the Republican Party under Trump and particularly post-January 6th is the extent to which Republicans have attempted to rationalize the actions of Trump and the January 6th rioters. And part of that is changing their own internal rules of what's acceptable, 
And then part of that is also characterizing the other side, Democrats, as even more radical and extreme. And the more Democrats seem radical and extreme and dangerous, the more you can justify extraordinary actions in order to prevent them from taking power. And this sense of identity protection, I, I think what goes on in a lot of minds of folks, especially given the geographical sorting as well, everybody I know supports Trump, can't possibly be the case that anybody would be for this crazy critical race theory, which is destroying our schools somehow. It's the constant sense of having to invent some threat in order to somehow justify the choices and identities that are part of you. But when you put it like that, it makes me wonder about the two-party element of your thesis. Like, we're in agreement that it's the evolution of the Republican Party that has really pushed us in the direction that we're going, right? It's the GOP. So if that's the case, then it seems like the drivers of the Republican Party's changes are primarily rooted in long-standing social dynamics in American politics, right? Basically, fundamentally, the conflict over race that has defined the structure and the arc of U.S. history for so long. Uh, and if that's the case, why would having multiple parties change things so much? I mean, you know, in the 1850s, you had Whigs and Republicans. The Whigs ended up falling apart because they just couldn't navigate the question of slavery properly. So you go back to two parties. But the fact that we had three parties for at least a brief period of time didn't solve the conflict over slavery. That was really a conflict about slavery, not the number of parties that we had. Right. Fair enough. So I think there's two ways that I, I would think about this in the current system. One is just a practical challenge, which is to say, OK, say you're a Democrat and you think, you know, the Republican Party is incredibly dangerous. That's how I feel uh, as a party that has been taken over by an extreme liberal faction. But OK, so that's the case. And you look at the polling and you say, well, you know, the Republicans are in the minority on almost all of these positions. You know, 60 plus percent of Americans you know, are not bought into the big lie. And, you know, America is generally a center left country, increasingly on racial justice issues and especially on economic issues. All that is true. And yet Republicans keep winning elections because they're the default party for the half of the country that sees the Democrats as the opposition somehow or can't bring themselves to vote for Democrats. So that's kind of a problem because I, I don't see any way in which Democrats win a sort of overwhelming national majority. Now, part of that problem is, well, where are folks who don't see themselves as Democrats but don't you know, want to go full Trump MAGA to go? I mean, I guess they could vote for Democrats, but there's a lot of things about Democrats that they don't like. They could vote for Republicans because they agree with them on some issues and then update their values to make it feel like they're not compromising themselves. But what if there were a center-right party that could get 15% of the vote and could align with Democrats to have a kind of supermajority pro-democracy coalition, as you see in many other countries with proportional multi-party systems, Israel being a recent example of that. So that's sort of on the practical side of how you get out of this. And, and then the other question that I think is worth asking is, why did the Republican Party go so crazy? And you know, I think a lot of that does have to do with the binary party system 
in which if you are a plurality of a plurality, as the I think the MAGA faction initially was, you can take over one of the two major parties and there's nowhere else for folks in that party to go unless they want to join the opposing party. And this binary us against them mentality, it kind of drives everyone crazy, but it also creates a political situation in which the Republicans basically had to double down on racist rhetoric because their economic policies were incredibly unpopular. And they could do that in a two-party system because there are only two bundles in a two-party system. I really love that last point that you made about how the different institutional arrangements deal with radical parties. Because if you look at, um, let's take Germany as a comparison case, and like we're going to get a lot into different ways of structuring elections, so I'm going to bracket that for the moment. Really excited to nerd out with you about RCB. Me too. <laughs> Like just looking at the way that the alternatives for Deutschland, AFD for short, is the German far right anti immigrant party, right? And AFD has done pretty well at the ballot box in some recent elections. But the the point is that because they run as a separate party, they don't have the capacity to take over the mainstream Christian Democrats, which have been running Germany for such a long time. As a result, they remain the sort of rump faction in parliament that's capable of being isolated, right? They, they don't get a say in major party decisions. Now, they influence the political discourse still, and they've pushed German parties to the right on issues related to immigration. There's no question about that. But it's not the same thing as a party having you know a significant but still small minority number of seats in the national parliament or the Bundestag in Germany versus that same party actually running the major faction. And the German system, by virtue of the way that it's structured, separates out the radical right from the mainstream right. The U.S. system does not do that. And that creates profoundly different incentives and capacities for far-right parties. I mean, one way to look at it is that people used to think the American system was superior because it shut out far-right factions, right? Because you couldn't have an independent far-right party that could gain significant representation in Congress. But now what we've seen is it has this point of vulnerability where the far-right faction can stage a takeover of American politics by taking over one of the two major parties, in part because we have this weird primary system, which is actually pretty rare in international context. Yeah, I think we're the only advanced democracy in which the parties basically give up the responsibility of choosing their nominees. I mean, if you think about Donald Trump's career, right, I mean, he, he first ran as a third party candidate, a reform party candidate. He actually lost to Pat Buchanan in the primary. But if the Reform Party had been a viable party, you know, Trump and Buchanan, you know, it could have been a 10, 15 percent party and they would have had some representatives. But the other parties would have formed a coalition as the center parties in Germany have. Even the Tea Party, you know, originally a lot of Tea Party organizers tried to organize a third party rather than run as Republicans, but they realized they couldn't get anywhere. So they started taking over the Republican Party. And it turned out it was pretty easy to take over the Republican Party. And once you got the nomination, you were the candidate. And as more Tea Party and radical Republicans took over the Republican Party, the moderates in the Republican Party said, oh, this is not really the home for us. They retired, they were defeated, they left politics, and that made the Republican Party into an increasingly liberal radical party. And I think the point that you mentioned before, Zach, is so important because for a long time we thought, oh, two parties are basically moderate. And that's because the two parties had 
liberal and conservative wings, and they didn't really stand for all that much at the national level. They were sort of these very loose overlapping coalitions, so they looked moderate. But once the sort of extreme conservative wing took over the Republican Party, it's kind of game over in our two-party system. Things flipped into a different state. You might even call it a doom loop. Yeah, I, w- I want to ask you that, right? Like, So when you say doom loop, what are we looping towards? Right. What is your vision of like the inevitable terminus of the American two party system as currently constituted? Well, I have to be an optimist at some level to be able to keep doing what I'm doing. So my hope is that we have more conversations like this where we look deeply at the structures and institutions of American politics and realize that if we don't make any changes, we would be headed to some sort of authoritarian violent breakdown and that we eventually, before it's too late, figure out that we should change our system and that we need a a center-right party that believes in democracy and that we create one and allow for a coalition government. Eventually, you know, the far right becomes marginalized. And, you know, something that you see in, in a lot of these European party systems is that precisely because the far right can't get really more than 15%, they start fighting amongst themselves because they don't really have any real power. It's the old Henry Kissinger line about why the politics of academia are so nasty is because the stakes are so low that one of the things you find in extreme parties is that there's a lot of internal bickering and eventually they kind of fall apart. But because they're so close to power and everybody wants this power, people are willing to make these really dubious moral compromises with the devil. Yeah. There are a whole host of ways that this can go badly, right? I, I I just wrote a long piece about this called How Does This End that isolates a variety of different scenarios. But it, it seems likely to me that the current levels of polarization generated in significant part by our two-party system make, at least in the short term, more contested elections more likely, more street violence more likely. In the longer run, you can imagine evolution into a Hungary-style one-party state where Republicans have changed the rules such that Democrats can barely compete, or you know, a crisis of political authority where presidents accrue more and more power because Congress can't do anything due to deadlock legislative politics, filibuster, stuff like that. None of these are good, right? There's also a version where the Democratic Party basically tries to undo the process that we've been describing. And they tack hard right on civil rights issues in order to try to restore the heterogeneous coalitions and like undo polarization in the way that we've been talking about it happening. None of these scenarios seem good to me, which means, as you just suggested, like the thing that we got to do if we want to lessen the likelihood of disaster is to make some kind of reform. Which seems unthinkable now, but one thing that always, you know, really seems odd when you take a step back and, and have discussions about political reform in the United States is that our current system is like a lot more modern than most of us like to think. There's certain features like the filibuster that people tend to think of as unchanging inevitable necessities of American politics. Like Joe Manchin basically just said the filibuster was, what, 232 years old? When in actuality, the modern filibuster is a 20th century invention that's been tweaked repeatedly over the course of time, and actually pretty recently, to change the way that judges are appointed. Like It seems inevitable that the, the structures work the way that they do until you take a step back and you're like, hey, wait a minute. No, we've changed them all the time. Yes. <laughs> And that is incredibly important 
to widen our thinking and, and understand that democracy is an evolving and ever-changing institution. And that the original version of U.S. democracy limited the franchise to white propertyed men over 25. Throughout our history, we've expanded the franchise in many directions. We've become a much more participatory democracy. And we've, we've had these kind of waves in which what seemed unthinkable suddenly became possible. The Revolutionary War itself was a kind of radical transformation, the idea that the colonies could govern themselves. Constitution, uh, I think we have to understand that, that our Constitution is actually our second Constitution. We think of it as our first, but we were governed by the Articles of Confederation for a period of time. And Madison and Hamilton and, and others said, no, this isn't working. We need to meet up and rewrite our governing rules. All the founding fathers would have said, we should continue to rethink our rules. Now, the, the idea that 55 white men spending a summer together in Philadelphia figured everything out for posterity is a weird and far-fetched idea. Uh, in fact, we've added amendments over time. In the progressive era, there was a sort of this real reshift in how we do democracy. We introduced the direct primary then, which I think was a mistake. We should have used that is an opportunity to move to proportional representation, as some people at the time suggested. We moved to the direct election of senators, which required a constitutional amendment, which people would have thought was unthinkable, the initiative and referendum process in a bunch of states, and women's suffrage, right? So there have been a lot of moments in our history in which it was clear that the institutions weren't working, and we had a kind of collective sense that we should do differently again in the 1960s with you know, massive expansion of voting rights and a bunch of other good government reforms. And yeah, I, I think we're about due for another burst of reform here. As Lee makes clear, the American constitutional order has actually undergone quite a few transformative reforms in its history. So it's definitely not absurd to suggest that the time for another quote-unquote burst of reform has come. And Lee has some ideas for pretty significant changes we can make. We'll get into those ideas after a quick break. So before we get into the uh, likelihood of reforms, which is, I think, the, the most worrying part of the picture that you're presenting in your book, I want to talk about what the different reforms could be, because you're talking about something much more radical than even most democracy reformers in, currently in Congress right now have been willing to countenance, which is like actually changing wholesale the way that we elect people to Congress. That's like sort of the real thrust of your diagnosis. Right. The model that you like the best is basically patterned off of Ireland, right? Yeah. And they there are two features of this, ranked choice voting and multi-member districts. Right. Can you talk about how those features would work and why you think they're probably desirable in the American context? So the Irish system involves multi-member districts, which rather than having a single member represent a single distinct geographical region, you have a much larger geographical region, and then you have like five people represent that region, and they're elected proportionally. So the top five candidates after an election would go to Congress. 
And the Irish use ranked choice voting as part of that. So what it means is that you go into the ballot booth, you rank candidates in order of preference, and then candidates are eliminated from the bottom up. And it means that you can vote for candidates that you might not think will have a chance, but your vote is not wasted. You get a backup vote. And it, in practicality, what that does is it encourages candidates to kind of be a little nicer to each other and work together and you know, build coalitions. I would note that it's also the system that Northern Ireland adopted when it finally ended the troubles and, and had a, a peace agreement because it's a system that encourages cross-cutting coalitions under tense racial times. I think, you know, given that America is transitioning into a, a multi-ethnic, multi-racial democracy, if you look around the world and you look at what constitutional scholars and comparative political scientists say about how to build democracy in a diverse society, the thing that they would absolutely say is the worst, most dangerous thing to do is to have a heavily majoritarian binary system, because what that inevitably is going to lead to is a, a polarized race war. And that's exactly what we have here. So what they would advise is, is some form of proportional representation. I think the ranked choice voting or the sometimes called the alternative vote or you know, more broadly a vote pooling system is good because it encourages cross-racial coalitions in, in electing representatives. And it leads people to think in terms of allies more than enemies. Proportional representation is a kind of confusing phrase here because usually when I think of a PR system, I think of something like Israel, an example they used earlier. In Israel, you have a national vote and parties get a percentage of seats in the Knesset, the parliament, relative to their percentage in the national vote share, right? But proportional representation can refer to all, all sorts of different things, right? And, and the system you're talking about, the Irish-style system, doesn't have a national vote tally. It's still based on districts. Now, one confusing point is you can have either candidates running or parties running inside a district. And so it could be that, you know, the top five candidates vote getters win and then end up going to Congress. Or it could be that if Democrats win 60% of the local vote, they get three out of the five seats. If Republicans win, you know, 20%, they get one. And then if you're, I don't know, what should we call it? The Mitt Romney party gets another 20% in, in your like hypothetical world where we've got a three-party system, they get the last seat. All right. As opposed to there just being different candidates who can win. It seems like Obviously, you can litigate some of the finer points, like the ones I just got into, because I'm fascinated by that distinction. But the bigger issue is why you would pick this over any of the other forms of PR, like, for example, the nationalized Israeli system, just to take one point of comparison. Yeah. Let's talk about Israel, because every time I talk about proportional representation, people's minds immediately go to Israel. And well, I mean, really, the, the purest majoritarian system is the British Westminster system because it's a simple system in which there's no separate president. There's you know, the House of Lords is basically irrelevant, and all the members of the House of Commons are elected by single member first-past-the-post districts. But the Israeli system is probably at the other end of the spectrum, which is that there's one national district. I think it's 120 seats? 120. And basically, there's a threshold you have to get at least three point. 25% of the vote, I think, now. And you elect 
parties, not candidates. So parties decide on what their lists are going to be. And then if party gets 30% of the vote, they get 30 seats of the top 30 members of the party on the list get to represent the party. Now, I, I think the criticism of the Israeli system is that it leads to a fair amount of fragmentation and it's sometimes hard to form coalitions. I think Israel is a country that is in a very difficult situation, broadly surrounded by enemies and also having parties that represent Palestinians, which are you know, generally the parties that represent the uh, Israeli citizens don't want to have coalitions with the Palestinian parties. Now they do for the first time. Yeah, yeah. For the first time they do. So, yeah, and that's changed. And the argument against the Israeli system, I think, is now maybe an argument for it that you can have these shifting coalitions. And it was, you know, finally, after four elections, they figured out how to form a coalition to get rid of a demagogue. And now it seems to be working reasonably well. I mean, the fact that Israel is still a democracy, I think, is in many ways kind of remarkable. It's also the same system that the Dutch use, more or less. And the Dutch have an even lower threshold of just 1%. They have a national party list system. And it's worked pretty well for the Dutch. I mean, they have a far-right party, but that party has never been in government, and there's always a, a coalition. And I think there's like 13 or so parties in the Dutch parliament, and, and one of them, they have an, an animal rights party. So You know, if there were one of those in the U.S., I might actually consider voting for it. Yeah. Uh, in yeah. all seriousness, totally underplayed issue, but yeah. uh, it does seem like too many parties can be a real problem. Yeah, it can be. As you suggested a second ago, right? In all these blue sky reform ideas, you know, like making the U.S. look a lot like other countries, right? we're, we're talking mostly about changing the House and to a lesser degree the Senate, which is pretty hard to change. So the House could be something like the Irish system and the Senate. Maybe you just have ranked choice voting, which would allow for multiple candidates to have a shot and theoretically third-party candidates to have a better shot than they might otherwise. At least that's the way you lay out in your book. But one set of changes we haven't talked about in all of these different systems are presidential versus parliamentary democracies. Because in theory, you could have a multi-member RCV legislature, but still keep a president. That's, in fact, what you're proposing for the United States. But you could also have the same system where you have a prime minister, right? It's, there are different axes of reform. The question of whether the president is directly elected by the people or the prime minister is chosen by the members of parliament, uh, of a national legislature, to be more precise. You know, a lot of people who are worried about American democracy focus heavily on the presidency, on both its powers and the fact that we have a presidential system at all, because in, in a lot of countries, especially in Latin America, conflicts between the president and the legislature who have dual claims to being the voice of the people if they're elected separately have led to real democratic crises and sometimes even coups. Juan Lin's a eminent political scientist has is really famous for making this argument that presidential systems are more unstable than parliamentary ones. But you're you're not so worried, it seems, about presidential democracy in the United States, right? It's more the structure of the legislature that bothers you. I, I tend to agree with that, by the way, but I, I'm curious as to what your reasoning is. It's the structure of the party system. So, I mean, I, I want to start out by clarifying something that's pretty important because I think a lot of folks equate parliamentary systems with multi-partyism and say, well, we can't have multiple parties because we're not a parliamentary system. I mean, the real thing that determines the number of parties is the district magnitude. And as you know, there are plenty of multi-party systems, mostly in Latin America, that have presidents. Now, one of the things that distinguishes the U.S. from many Latin American countries is 
the formal powers of the U.S. president are much weaker, as I, I think we are seeing with Joe Biden's inability to get his agenda through Congress. In fact, the very famous book uh, on the presidency is uh, Richard Neustadt's classic book on presidential power, in which he says that the power of the president is the power to persuade. Now, that's not a ton of power. Granted, the presidency has grown in power as the executive branch has grown, but most importantly, it's grown in power because Congress, the first branch of the government has become increasingly dysfunctional. And it's become increasingly dysfunctional because it is increasingly polarized because, again, of our two-party system. So what has happened in Congress is you basically have a kind of breakdown of the ability to pass legislation. And when you have divided government, you basically have a Congress that's just going to stonewall the presidency. So the president kind of tries to do some stuff through the executive branch, but ideally, you would have something that represents the Congress of the 60s through the, the late 80s, in which Congress was able to produce a lot of important legislation, broad bipartisan legislation that got like 60, 70 votes in the Senate, and with some lasting achievements. I mean, you, really, the last time Congress did that was 1990, when you had the Clean Air Act and some major comprehensive immigration and budget reform. And since then, it's been pretty rare to see this sort of broad bipartisan coalition legislation. And so what's happened is that more and more of the focus has shifted to the president. But as we're seeing with this Voting Rights Act and the Build Back Better, is like the president doesn't have power to enact these sweeping bills. Congress has the power. So I think if we were to think about a multi-party system with presidential elections. I mean, unless you get rid of the electoral college and have some sort of two-round system like the, the French use, we're still going to basically have two broad coalitions running for president. But what you can imagine is, you know, presidents proposing uh, broad coalition governments by choosing a broad representative cabinet. I remember some folks were joking about this Tom Friedman column that came out in which he suggests a Biden-Liz Cheney presidential ticket. But that's the kind of broad coalition government that you might imagine. And you, you, know, you might imagine both sides trying to, to have a more centrist broad coalition ticket. That would not be that different either way. But is that what the lesson of Latin American presidential democracy and multi-party systems is? Is it that you end up getting a broad centrist system? Or is it that the president just gets stonewalled from multiple different directions by multiple different opposition parties, and you end up having a series of institutional crises and a presidency assuming more power, and in weaker democracies, or I should say institutionally weaker democracies, you even get military coups and social breakdowns and authoritarian presidents, and the term auto-coup emerges out of the Latin American experience, which is not to say that like democracy in Latin America is a failure, just that there are lots and lots of examples of presidentialism going badly in that context, which given the extreme polarization and social divisions in the U.S., you think might raise some questions about presidentialism if we're talking about full-scale reform. I mean, sure. Like, if we're going to rewrite the Constitution, I would move towards a unicameral legislature and a parliamentary system. I, I wouldn't have a separately elected president. I think the record of presidentialism is generally pretty bad, as you note. Now, I mean, I do wonder how we would think about the record of presidentialism if you know, many of the Western European democracies 
had separately elected presidents. France is a semi-presidential system in which there's a president and a prime minister. I mean, Finland has a president, but the president has pretty weak and minor powers. So you could, you know, conscribe the powers of the U.S. president and, and have a prime minister who plays a much more important role. There's a lot of different arrangements. I mean, again, I, I would note that the U.S. presidency has a lot fewer formal powers than most of the Latin American presidencies. But, you know, this is the system that we have. And, you know, barring a constitutional amendment, we have to start where we can. And the places we can start with are how we do congressional elections. Because Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution gives Congress pretty wide latitude to write its own election rules. Yeah, I will say I I tend to agree with your point, like your implied point anyway, in the Western Europe comparison, that a lot of the failures that get ascribed to presidentialism in the Latin American context are really the product of other social forces and conflicts between different groups in society and uh, weaker institutionalization of democratic norms than you get in some longer-standing democracies in Western Europe. So, like, if you flip the institutional arrangements in different places, maybe you would get different results. So, I, I don't think it's fair to blame everything on presidentialism. But you know, you also raised another point there, which is that like you couldn't get rid of the president without a constitutional amendment, and and fair enough. But it's also really, really hard to imagine reforming the legislature. Like, not constitutional amendment hard, but like really difficult. It's hard to get Congress to agree on anything, as you just noted, let alone to imagine the two parties coming together and agreeing to vote on their own abolition, essentially, or if not abolition, their own fracturing. And so I like if we're talking about getting to a better system, which I agree is imperative, what's the non-doom perspective on how we can get from point A to point B? Well, I mean, the first thing is that we have to think in terms of individual lawmakers and not in terms of parties, right? I mean, a common retort you know, when I say, well, we've got to change the system is, well, why would the parties ever do that? But who are the parties? Like, is it the leadership of the party? We tend to reify the parties when the parties are really coalitions. They're coalitions of groups. They're coalitions of individual members of Congress. And there are a lot of people in the Democratic Party right now who are pretty unhappy with the direction of the leadership. And there are at least a few people in the Republican Party who are unhappy with the leadership. And everybody kind of hates the centralization. So would AOC and many of the progressive Democrats rather have their own party and then maybe form a coalition with the moderate Democrats, but they would get to kind of stand on their own? I, I think so. Might some centrist Republicans wish to run on their own party? I, I think absolutely. So if you think in terms of individual members and factions and groups, there's a potential in which a lot of folks who are in Congress say, look, the system isn't working for us. We hate it. And I can get elected under a different system. And in fact, I actually might enjoy being a member of Congress more under that other system. In theory, yes. In practice, the problem is that in a hyper-polarized environment, whenever something gets proposed by one party or a member of one party, the people in the other party tend to take a reflexive stand against it. So when you've got, I don't know, let's take your hypothetical. You start with a an AOC-sponsored bill, 
that would change us towards uh, an Irish style system. You can imagine every Republican in Congress running against it on grounds of, you know, it's the far left radical socialist takeover plan for American democracy. And you can see the reverse happening if Republicans propose something like this. Like the dissident Republicans are not just the Mitt Romneys of the world, but also the Matt Gates's and the Marjorie Taylor Greens. They're not exactly the people that Democrats would want to line up with on this kind of proposal. It seems like the dynamic, the structure of a two-party system makes it very, very difficult to imagine a world in which individual legislatures start thinking as individuals in the way that you describe, given the partisan identities that would be activated in any debate over a legislative proposal to change things. Yes, that is certainly true, which is you know why we have to think about building that coalition before legislation is introduced. Yeah, I mean, I hope that AOC does not introduce this legislation for precisely the reason that you suggest, or at least until she has a sort of surprising Republican co-sponsor. And again, I think the challenge here is really building that broad coalition at the start in a way that it becomes harder to characterize this as a Democratic or a Republican bill. And I mean, we're clearly not there, but, you know, maybe we will be. And, you know, maybe it means that some states start experimenting with this. Uh, I mean, there's an interesting proposal in Wyoming, which is a very conservative state, but there are some folks in the legislature there who are thinking about using multi-member proportional districts in their legislature. And one of the reasons for that is because the Republican Party in Wyoming is divided. It's divided between a kind of more classic conservative Liz Cheney wing and a more radical anti-Liz Cheney pro-MAGA faction. And you see this in a lot of states that are solidly one party or the other. I mean, California is an overwhelmingly blue state, but there are divides within the Democratic Party in California or any city, New York City, uh, certainly divides within the Democratic Party, as the primary showed, although the right choice voting made for some interesting coalitions. But the broader challenge is that we've got to think in terms of these intra-party factions and think about the coalitions that could emerge and start building them ahead of time. And that's one way forward. The other, a couple of other things I'm kind of intrigued by, two Senate races I'll be watching most closely, I think in 2022, are Alaska and Utah. Alaska, because of Lisa Murkowski running under a new system with right choice voting, and Utah, because Evan McMullen is trying to run as an independent, and he's going to try to challenge Mike Lee. Now, the only way Evan McMullen wins is if Democrats basically stand down. And Democrats should stand down and endorse Evan McMullen because there's no way a Democrat is going to win statewide in Utah. And Evan McMullen would be a moderate Republican run as an independent. But you could imagine that happening in a couple of states, right? I mean, there's no way Democrats are going to win in Missouri or Louisiana. But a moderate independent might win if Democrats stand down. And then you could envision a kind of group of moderate, independent, center-right folks who could support uh, more transformative legislation. Now, is that a long shot? Sure. But could it happen? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Over the course of my conversation with Lee Drutman, we wind up at this place a bunch. Diagnosing a potential structural reform or pro-democracy strategy is possible, but really a long shot. And since I'm not willing to give up on democracy, I, I guess I'm willing to entertain some long shots. For example, could there be some kind of breakaway faction of the Republican Party that emerges to take back their party in some form? Lee and I will dig into this possibility after one last quick break. I think it's worth dwelling on the reasons why that could be fairly characterized as a long shot because it's uh, it illustrates just how much of a mess we are in, in certain ways, right? So if you're a Democrat and you hear Lee Drutman making this argument, I think you probably say two things. You say, one, first of all, we can win in deep red states. We just won in Alabama. Now, it happened to be the case that this only lasted for a few years and the Republican candidate was uniquely bad because he was arguably a pedophile, among other problems, and Trump was in office and there was a real Trump backlash. But still, Democrats won in Alabama. Right? They won a Senate race in one of the reddest states of the country. Then two, even moderate Republicans now aren't very helpful for the Democratic agenda, right? Like, so Build Back Better failed because Democrats couldn't get enough support for it on their own, and not a single Republican was interested in defecting. That's why the first version failed. So if on signature pieces of legislation, Democrats can't get Mitt Romney on board, why would they sacrifice even a long-shot chance of getting another Doug Jones in office when they could get another Mitt Romney clone who's not going to back any of the things that their voters really care about. I'm not saying this just to say your scenario is unlikely because you've said that it is, but also because it shows the ways in which, to bring our conversation back to the beginning, partisan self-interest so distorts the way that parties and voters think about the world that even if in the long run it would be good for American democracy, and I think it probably would be to have a larger moderate Republican faction, it's very difficult to imagine Democrats willing to make the kind of sacrifice that you're describing, given what their voters and their electeds really care about. Sure. That's exactly the challenge. Now, if there were 10 Mitt Romneys in the Senate or 15 Mitt Romneys in, in the Senate, the dynamics would be different. There's basically Mitt Romney and Lisa Murkowski, if you want to be generous, Susan Collins, but that doesn't get you to 60 votes. So as a result, there's not a whole lot of action there, although the infrastructure bill did pass, but I think that was a kind of unusual circumstance. But still, you're getting at this really important dynamic, which is the distinction between the short term and the long term. In the short term, we always have to win the next election because if the other side gets total power, they're going to do awful things. And as a basically a partisan Democrat, I kind of believe that, that if Republicans get total power, they're going to do some pretty awful things. But at the same time, if we don't take some chances and some gambles, we're going to be stuck in the same cycle. And I think there's a pretty good chance that Republicans will win at least the next two elections. So if it's a long shot for Democrats to win in 22 and in 24, then maybe we should just try a bunch of things that could potentially break this doom loop and get us to a better place for the long term. 
and be willing to take some short-term gambles. Because if we keep doing the same thing, we're going to keep winding up in the same place. So I just find myself incredibly frustrated. I see hundreds of millions, billions of dollars flowing into these races to make all these consultants rich, to flood all these advertisements that are hardly moving anybody and just turning people even more radically against the other party. And I don't see any of that money going into broader efforts to change our voting system in a way that would really save our democracy for the long term. On that lovely note, I'm going to uh, leave you, our listeners, and thanks, Lee, for being on the show and offering, despite that last little depressing note, uh, a generally a sense that things can be different and better than they are right now. Uh, I always really count on your work for doing that, so I, I appreciate that. Thanks, Lee. Yeah, well, thank you, Zach. And, you know, I mean, I think it's really important not to give up hope, because if we give up hope that things can be better, we've already lost. And it's only by feeling like we have a better future and something to work towards that we can get down and, and do the hard work that we need to do over the next several years, at least. This episode is part two of a two-part special asking just how worried should we be about the future of American democracy. It's hosted by me, Zach Beecham. Now, in case you missed it, please check out part one, last week's conversation, and really more of a lively debate with New York Times columnist Ross Douthat, who is a lot less worried about democracy than I am. Fox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could make better. If you have any ideas on these topics or for future guests or things to discuss, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review and subscribe. And join us on Monday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations with my friend and yours, Sean Ailey.